0: The following is an excerpt from episode 306 of the Week in Doubt podcast. If you'd like to hear the episode in its entirety, you can stream or download it for free via iTunes, Podbean, or Stitcher. As always, thanks for listening. And so we're 20 minutes in. I can't believe it's taken me this long to get to the first story. But as I mentioned last week, one of the things I wanted to talk about was a debate. Peter Singer had with Andy Bannister, a theist, on Justin Briarley's uh, unbelievable podcast. And a lot of you listening are probably already aware who Peter Singer is. He's a, uh, I guess, what do you call him, an ethicist, a moral philosopher. He's no stranger to controversy. He's very pro-animal rights, which I think is a very good thing. Um, but he he also has some controversial stances regarding things like euthanasia for infants with you know very severe birth defects or ailments or something like that um and so his critics or opponents will sometimes try to twist his his takes on on controversial topics like that and say that this is a guy who cares more about animals than he does human children etc cetera, etc cetera. and they do actually talk about that during the course of this debate or or conversation that took place on Justin Brierly's podcast. So if you want to hear them talk about that, you know you can listen to the uh the podcast in its entirety that particular episode in its entirety but the clip that I wanted to comment on actually has to do with them debating over theodicy, you know, or kind of a fancy word for the the problem of evil. And the problem of evil... It's probably one of those atheism 101 things, you know, it's one of those basic reasons why people tend to doubt the existence of God. Uh, But it's something I haven't thought about or wrestled with for quite some time, but I used to back in the day. And for some reason, it just kind of piqued my interest. So I think I'll play the clip and and then just jump in and
1: comment here and there one sort of metaphysical object as it were which is, which is God and those things are grounded in the mind of, of God not least that's helpful because moral commandments do follow, but moral duties do follow between people and so rather than thou shalt not murder, floating around abstractly out in the void doing nothing until human beings have evolved to such a point that suddenly it applies to them in the same way as the law of gravity applies to them actually we have a divine person and duties and so forth follow between persons. I think there's something around that that intrigues me
2: why does that not follow for you, that that these duties and moral values should be grounded in something, I suppose, beyond ourselves in, in the form of God, ultimately?
3: Well, to answer that, we would have to get back to questions about whether there are reasons for us to believe that God exists. And especially as we're talking about morality and the claim that morality is grounded in the existence of, of God or the will of God. I do think you have to look at the world around you and you have to say there is an immense amount of suffering that goes on, which I don't believe an all-powerful, omniscient and good, morally good being, would permit. Um, Because this is not simply suffering that occurs to those who do bad things. It's not even if you were to believe what I think is a repellent doctrine of original sin, that all humans have sinned because uh, Adam and Eve sinned, and therefore it's okay for us to be punished. Because even if you accept that, um, non-human animals not being descended from Adam would not have original sin, and yet it's clear that they suffer, and not only at the hands of humans, they suffer because uh, I come from Australia, you know, there's seasonal droughts um, out there in the arid center of Australia, there are drats and many kangaroos and other animals will slowly die of thirst a miserable death i cannot for the life of me see why mm. a good god would permit that so
0: so so really all right so i just want to stop to say that i am completely simpatico with peter singer there uh, i think his sentiments were beautifully and concisely put and maybe that's why uh, i want to play this clip on the show, um, it mirrors my own beliefs. And I also want to pause to say, before I dig in here, you know, I want to kind of offer the caveat that I think when people start, you know, when people on our side the argument, non-believers, whatever, start talking about the problem of evil, they can kind of run the risk of sounding whiny or like uh, the glass is half-empty kind of people. So I'm not by any stretch of the imagination trying to say that life absolutely sucks, it's, it's horrible, uh, it's nothing but a veil of tears, you know what I mean? Um... I think that there is a lot of wonder and beauty in life and a lot of joy to be had. But at the same time, you shouldn't sugarcoat things too much. Life is a mixture of good and bad. And there is a lot of suffering in the world. Um, Yeah, just a lot of horror, suffering, iniquity. And it's hard to reconcile all that with the idea of a good God, especially a personal, self-aware creator god, like uh, the Yahweh of the Bible or something like that. I mean, something vague or pantheistic, something <laughs> like uh, the Force in Star Wars, then you can say, yeah, it's not really self-aware. It It's not a personal being. You can kind of let it off the hook. But if you're going to argue for the existence of a god who is sentient and aware, uh, a, a personal creator God who intentionally made the universe, then yeah, you've got a problem on your hands. Because how do you reconcile the idea of a God, of that kind of God, especially if you're going to insist that he's a moral and just God with all the suffering in the world? And I'm also right on the same page as Peter Singer when he brings up, and this is one of my favorite uh, things to bring up in this, when this argument rears its head, and that's the ugly doctrine of original sin. You know, when you ask a Christian, you know, why is there so much suffering in the world? Um, Why is the world in the state it's in? And they'll say, well, we live in a fallen world. It's our fault, you know, that somehow um, we're responsible for the transgression of the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, obviously, according to the uh, the narrative. And I fail to see how that makes any moral sense at all. Two people, according to the narrative, if you take it literally, two people ate the wrong kind of fruit, and now every human being down the line is to be punished and suffer because of it, rendered mortal and afflicted with all the nasty vagaries of existence for a crime they themselves didn't commit. I fail to see the justice in it. And, and I think there's a reason why it doesn't really make sense or hold water logically, because to me, it's, it's a myth. Um, and and uh, I'll go further and say that to me, it kind of smacks of or has the feel of a kind of classic ancient myth that seeks to explain some phenomenon, some aspect of the natural world. You know, kind of like, what's lightning? Oh, that's Zeus's thunderbolt, or that's Thor fighting giants. Uh, (laughs) um, Why does suffering exist? Oh, because, you know, two people ate the wrong kind of fruit. And I'm not trying to sound overly glib in the way I'm talking about the Adam and Eve myth or fall in the garden narrative. Um, Because I think it can be a very interesting myth to wrestle with and analyze. And there's a lot you can read into it. But at the end of the day, it's still just a myth and a pretty lousy explanation for human suffering. And I think there's something really distasteful about The way believers seem to unapologetically put this myth forward as, not only put this myth forward as an explanation for suffering, but how they also seem to use it to put the onus for suffering on our shoulders, as if we should feel guilty for some imaginary transgression that took place countless lifetimes before we were even conceived. As if to say, yes, there is a God, but suffering is your fault, not his. So not only do we have to endure the suffering of this world, but we're to feel responsible for that suffering as well. But ma'am, I digressing, so let's get back to the clip. Well, not actually digressing. It was on topic, but, yeah, you know, I was going off
2: on a tangent. The fact that you can't place these Moral duties and values in the framework of God is because there are there are other aspects of God that you just find can't can't bring. It to that's the certainly of, a major yeah, reason for yeah. me.
3: I mean, uh, Andrew said uh, objected to extravagant Platonism and seemed mm-hmm. to imply that belief in a God um, is somehow less extravagant. We could have a debate about you know <laughs> <probably> w- <laughs> what creates more <laughs> metaphysical extravagance, and that would be another issue that we could raise. Um, and and also, I still haven't really heard uh, Andrew's answer to the question of whether uh, God is. Simply, you know, whether the things that God says are good, uh, he, they could it could have been different or not. I haven't. Mm-hmm. I know he said that something p- part of the idea of goodness, but then,
2: well, let, let's open, mm. l- send this back to you, Andy, yeah, because absolutely. I think there there's a couple of questions mm, there, there. are this this challenge over whether you you know you can resolve euthyphros' dilemma and yep. whether whether God actually does uh, command the good and so on. But also the problem of suffering, you know. Yeah. Peter says, gotcha. I, "I'm not. i don't, God's not even on the table as long as mm. the world we're in is is the world that God has created." Because, it, yeah, I can't reconcile that with a God God of love, as, as you seem to be able to.
1: That's a. There's a lot of good things in there, but let's take that that, that, that latter one, Peter, because I think that's a that's a hugely you know significant question. And of course, you know, as a as a philosopher who is you know no slouch, you'll be aware that there's a whole branch of philosophy. That deals with that from a range of perspective, which is the whole branch of philosophy and theology, known as as theodicy. So, I think it'd be interesting to do some digging mm. into that if one's going to use that as an argument. What I what I find interesting is right from the word go that actually that brings a, a whole moral dimension to bear on the world that we live in, because of course our instinctive reaction when, well, hopefully our instinctive reaction, whether it's kangaroos uh, dying of thirst in the centre of, uh, of Australia, or whether it's you know uh, a hurricane or whatever causing some kind of natural disaster, is we don't just view it coldly and dispassionately. We actually bring the ought to bear. It ought not to be like that. The world ought to be different. And that, that oughtness, as somebody once described, is a bit like the bubble on the wallpaper. You know, you wallpaper a room and there's a an bubble over here and you push it down and it, and it pops up over here. We can't seem to avoid making those those kind of value judgments. Now, if that was all there was to say, then I think, you know, if the Christian story was simply, God is good and has created this world, and hey, isn't it wonderful? Then I think we'd have every duty to come along and go, well, hang on just a moment. But of course, that's not, that's neither the beginning of the story nor the end of the story. The beginning of the story is that something has gone wrong uh, with creation. With uh, all due respect, Peter, you you slightly mischaracterize the Christian doctrine of original sin, which is not the reason the world is in the state it's in, is because God goes, ah, because of Adam and Eve, I'm just going to, you know, kill those kangaroos. Unless that's the (laughs) (laughs) Australian... That's the AV, the Australian version. Rather than that, that, actually, that's actually pr- fundamentally twisted and broken creation, both our relationship with God and, and creation mm, but, but, itself. But if
3: God is all powerful, why can't He fix it?
1: And so I think that's
0: a great yet an obvious question <laughs> Peter uh, Singer asks. You know, if, if God is all powerful, why can't He fix whatever this broken aspect of. Um, of existences. And his opponent will go on to say that, oh, well, he did, you know, he sent Jesus down to die or whatever. And rightly, Peter Singer will go on to say, well, that doesn't seem like much of a fix. And, uh, you know, here we are centuries and centuries after, um, the supposed death and resurrection of Christ, and we're still mired in suffering, etc. Um, but yeah, I found something kind of off-putting about the way... Uh, is it Andy Bannister? Yeah. Um, he almost seemed to take this kind of dismissive or condescending approach to Peter Singer's take on Original Sin as if it lacked depth or it was too superficial or something. Kind of like he was saying, oh, Adam and Eve ate the wrong kind of fruit. Oh, no, no, it's more more than that. It's something... Uh, You know, they transgressed and something became fundamentally twisted or broken. So, yeah, sounds like you're in agreement. Uh, Both of you are basically saying that according to the narrative, the first two people screwed up and now we're all paying for it. You just have this more kind of uh, charitable or hoity-toity way of summing it up.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Before I get to that, I also point out, interestingly, I don't know if you're aware of, one of our most iconoclastic iconoclastic atheist philosophers here in the UK is John Gray, Mm -hmm. formerly London School of Economics, and John, either in his book uh, Heresies or in Straw Dogs, I always forget which one this is found in, talks about The doctrine of original sin and the fall, and says, much as I disagree with much that Christians have said, um, he said, that's actually the one thing I think Christianity has got right. Just look around you. Human beings are a badly broken animal. Now,
0: well, by badly broken animal, you mean we're temporary, finite, imperfect creatures? Well, yeah, we're evolved beings who are quote unquote meant to stick around, you know, just long enough to help propagate the species to pass on our genes it would be really nice if we had evolved to be immortal and perfect but unfortunately for us it doesn't seem to be the way nature works
1: your question about why does god allow it well if god had simply sat there in heaven and done nothing about it then i think we'd have we would be able to raise that very charge of going well it's all right for you you're sitting up there in heaven life is pretty miserable down here but, of course, the, Chris, the whole of the Christian story is what God has and is doing about it in and through the cross and through Jesus. And whether or whatever you make of Jesus of Nazareth, certainly the heart of the Christian story, you have the ability to go. The one thing you cannot pin on the God of the Bible is this is not a God who knows, something, who knows nothing about suffering and injustice. And interestingly, Justin, that brings us full circle because one of the things I would also want to bring to the table as a Christian about human value and dignity is that value is also conferred by what somebody is prepared to pay. And in the God of the Bible, and then the cross, and in Jesus, you have God making a tremendous statement about the value of human beings such that he'll will be willing to go through that in the person but, of but Jesus. This is, uh, this is still very strange, right? Because uh, if we believe that Jesus was God's son and God sent
3: him to earth... I most that, certainly do. Right. So that happened about 2,000 years ago, right? Um, and yet the world still has all of this suffering. So, so here's this supposedly all-powerful being who created the universe and everything and who doesn't like the suffering that goes on, and who tried to do something about it 2,000 years ago, and yet the suffering is still going on, doesn't seem to be really better. So it seems like he's a bungler. He made a bad mistake in thinking that sending his son to be crucified would somehow fix all the suffering in the world, and it plainly hasn't.
1: Well, actually, if I was going to be wonderfully sort of cheeky, I'd go, actually, Stephen Pinker was sitting in that chair not long ago who says the world has got increasingly better uh, in the last time. Uh, <laughs> well, but
3: not as – I, well, and we I could, agree with Stephen Pinker about that, but white. not as much better as it ought to we have, could have could got if white. we had an all-powerful, but I think the cru- But
1: here's the interesting thing. That answer, I think – That question, of course, is raised right from the very very beginning because the the first Christians who went out across the Roman world and began preaching uh, the Christian message and saw Christians go from being 0.0008% of the Roman Empire to 51.2% in 312 years, they knew full well that Christians were thrown to the lions, that earthquakes happened, that disease happened, yet they still believed that God had come in the person of Jesus, risen from the dead, that that was the death blow struck to evil and that was the beginning of God's new creation and putting the world back together again. a
3: strange false belief, I think. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So I took issue with what Andy Bannister said
0: there too. In a way, he seems to be trying to put forward as evidence that Christianity must be true. The kind of, uh, there's my chihuahua snoring in the background, the zeal, you know, of the first Christians, or maybe I should say the early Christians. It gets a little confusing because in its infancy, what would become Christianity was or is referred to by scholars as the Jesus movement. The name Christianity didn't exist yet. The very first Christians uh, were Jewish. This was a Jewish movement. They believed in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And then this so-called Jesus movement moves into the Greco-Roman world, and more and more it gets adopted by Gentiles. But either way, you know, the, the early Christians were people who believed that Jesus' return was imminent. It, it was close at hand. And I imagine this fed into their religious fervor. There's been a lot of people throughout history, true believers, who have done extreme things in the name of their faith. In the case of the early Christians, uh as I think Andy Bannister was alluding to, there's all the cases of martyrdom, et cetera um and in a less inspirational kind of light, you know we we can look at recent relatively recent cases of uh cult behavior, um think of Jonestown, Heaven's Gate, or uh, you know, suicide bombers or whatever. Um, so I don't necessarily think that the zeal of a movement or belief system's adherence should be taken as good evidence of the validity or truth of the tenets of that, um, that belief system.
3: Well, um,
1: interesting. You say false belief. One of the things that intrigues me about the suffering question, as well, and to go, this is a this, this is a rabbit trail of, of its own, but I think it's a fascinating one. One of the things that began to intrigue me as I taught you know university level courses on the on the problem of evil was it's a peculiarly Western question it's not a, that to make it doesn't make it an irrelevant question but when i would travel to the east and i have many many friends who are living in situations where they've experienced terrific suffering persecution i've met people who have lost their homes their families who've been tortured in prison for their christian faith or experience other things um these questions don't arise. It was pointed out after the tsunami, the Asian tsunami. It was Western newspapers that were running editorials with "Where is God?" That question wasn't being asked. But well, because by, they don't really believe in that God that we believe. The well, personal Christi- God that Christians creates... caught up in it would, 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 would that would be Muslims happened. would have done. Those questions and were not were not being asked, and that just tells me something. I think it tells me that whilst this is not an unimportant question, we forget that we all ask our question from a from a position. We approach our philosophy from a position and we're approaching this as Westerners. He sounds like he
0: thinks he's making some kind of gotcha point, but I don't know what it is necessarily. Sounds like he's stating the obvious. In parts of the world where people might not necessarily believe in a personal God, you're going to find less instances of people saying, where was God <laughs> you know, uh, when all this went down? Duh, no kidding.
1: And I think there is something when you draw that lens back. Similarly, historically, to go if the problem of evil was such a spectacular argument against belief in a good God, then I think as the Oxford professor C.S. Lewis famously asked, how did that belief ever arise in the first place? Men are crazy, but not as, not as crazy as that.
0: And so I think this is another flawed argument from Andy Bannister. He's asking if the belief in a good God is so hard to reconcile with suffering. How did the belief in a good God arise in the first place? And to me, you know, beliefs aren't always logically consistent. And this might sound like a strange thing for an atheist or technically agnostic atheist to say, but I do think it's natural in a way for people to believe or to want to believe in a higher power, I think there's something ingrained in the human psyche where we're kind of primed to believe in some kind of agency. So it's almost natural, I think, for people to say, oh, there must be something bigger above us. There must be some force behind it all pulling the strings. And then I think it's probably, in keeping with human nature, to want to honor that higher power. That's the big kahuna in the sky, man. You do not want to mess with that. You know, keep your nose clean. Um, And so you treat it with reverence. So maybe in a sense, in the old use of the word, God is terrible, you know, awesome and frightening, but also God is good and you're to give thanks to him. But then you also, and so this is kind of natural stuff to believe in a sense, I think human beings want to believe in agency, but then you're left to try at the same time, there's that cognitive dissonance and you have to try to reconcile the suffering in the world. And the vagaries of existence, with the belief in this higher power, and then maybe you know you have to end up coming up with stories like the fall in the garden, and uh, it, it wasn't God. It's not God's fault. It's it's our us lowly humans. It's our fault.
1: So I think we need to wrestle with the question, but I think it's actually a question for both atheists and for Christians to wrestle with because it gets us to the issue.
3: I don't see why it's a question for atheists. I mean, we we understand the world has having evolved from. Uh, very simple beings that were not conscious. There's no plan to the world for an atheist evolutionary viewpoint. It's just happened through random mutations. Um, and unfortunately, you know, if you like, it's indifferent as to whether it causes suffering or not in terms of, mm. of how things evolve. Uh, so I don't see why it's at all a problem for okay. atheists that there is all this suffering. Well, let me explain
1: why. I think if atheists were simply content to leave it there – that would be one thing. But the fact that when, uh, that when uh, natural disasters happen, we find atheists quick to use but, moral but, language.
3: Why should – of course, and I've never denied that we should use moral language. So where does, the, we, where does
1: the oughtness come from? It's just evolution uh, it's, doing her thing or his thing no, or their No, it's not thing. at
3: all. Not at all. That would be the naturalistic fallacy, and that's why I said to Justin before, I'm, I'm not a naturalist. So I'm not trying to be
0: cruel or mean-spirited towards Andy Bannister, although, I mean, either way, he's probably never going to hear this. So uh, why not let rip? But but um, I'm not too impressed with his arguments. Uh, once again, I think that's another very flawed argument. Now he's falling back on that old chestnut: um, if there is no God or you don't believe in God, where's your morality come from? You know, um, where's that oughtness come from? Yeah. So I think you know, we're evolved beings, uh, social animals, who have in our nature both a capacity. For altruism and compassion, group solidarity, all that good stuff. And let's not sure code co too much. As I've often said in the show, we also have a capacity for tribalism and violence, in-group, out-group stuff. But as social animals, once again, we do have this capacity for compassion and altruism uh, and empathy. So it makes sense that when we see footage of or hear about uh people, children being wiped out in natural disasters or awful things happening to other people or even uh, other things happening to members of other species. I'm one of those people who always talks about how, uh, rightly or wrongly, I seem to be more more easily bothered um, when I hear about awful things happening to animals uh, or whatever. But what that says about me, whatever, you know, um... It, so it makes sense that we would feel for other beings and be concerned for other beings. Um, we're social animals with the uh, with the capacity for empathy, the ability to imagine ourselves in another being's shoes and how awful that would be, you know, and to, to feel for them. You don't need anything spooky or supernatural to explain
3: that. Um, no, it's that we can understand as rational beings that gratuitous suffering is a bad thing and that for beings to experience joy and pleasure and happiness is a good thing. And uh, moral language follows from that. So I don't think there's any problem for an atheist in, in using moral language. Um, and uh, I think that problem, the, the, the problem of suffering is therefore uniquely a problem for those who believe in a God who has these Three attributes of omniscience, Mm. uh, um, omnipotence, and omnibenevolence or or goodness. Well,
1: let me bring it back to the the issue of it not being a problem, Peter. You you wrote – sorry, I was just digging in my iPad because I thought I actually wanted to read you something. You said, uh, far from justifying principles that are shown to be natural – a biological explanation can be a way of debunking what seem to be eternal moral axioms. When a widely accepted moral principle is given a convincing biological explanation, we need to think again about whether we should accept the principle. And yes, another w- that's right. And a so debunking another
3: w- explanation. That means we don't support the value that we might hold because yeah. it helped us to survive and reproduce. The, the fact that a value helped us to survive and reproduce doesn't prove that it's false, but should lead us to a certain scepticism.
1: Exactly, and in the same way that our instinctive reaction to when we see suffering and nature is all oh, that's a terrible thing, we could debunk the same thing. In fact, A.J. Ayers, I think it was who famously said, uh, the debunker should be forced to wave his own debunking sword over his own cherished beliefs in public. And so I think actually evolution, when you apply it that way, becomes a universal acid. I, I don't think it does. And I've
3: argued, in fact, in a book well, called, called The Point of View of the Universe, that um, the idea of universal benevolence, the idea that um, as the late 19th century utilitarian philosopher Henry Sidgwick said, from the point of view of the universe, the interests of uh, each being can't the same if they're similar sorts of interests. Um, that's something that you cannot explain in evolutionary terms why we should hold that belief because it actually would be more advantageous to our survival mm. and reproduction if we said, no, beings who are not Any kin of mine or not in a reciprocal relationship with me, their interests don't count. Um, And of course, a lot of people do actually act on that, and it's not surprising given that we are evolved beings who descended from ancestors who succeeded in reproducing, it's not surprising that we should have tendencies to act on that. And when you referred to the idea of, of human nature as being broken, I think. It's simply uh, something that we can understand in evolutionary terms, why we do not act with universal benevolence to all.
0: All right, but I don't think I have anything more to add. Uh, there was a very interesting conversation, so if you're interested in hearing that whole debate or conversation, check out uh, Justin Brierly's Unbelievable podcast. Uh, you can probably find a video version on YouTube or you can get it on uh, iTunes. And like uh, many of my friends, um, I have uh, kind of mixed feelings about Justin Brierley, but I think at least he does provide a kind of service by offering a platform where theists and atheists can have these kind of um, honest back and forths or debates or dialogues. Thank you for listening to this extended excerpt from episode 306 of the Weekend Out podcast. Until next time.